Okay. <clears throat> Hi guys, Wild Club. Hi guys, welcome to another episode of Jillian Custard and this would be season two, episode three. Um, stay tuned and hope you enjoy. Governable. So what's new guys, Aiden? How's, how you, how's, how's, how's the work, bro? How's things? How's, what's work is of good. interest? Um, a lot of first years who um, are always fun to, to work with. Um, and yeah, and we've been talking about debates around land in South Africa, debates around oh. the, the, yeah, like we're talking about the Mfekane, which for those listeners who are not from South Africa is the way in which historians have spoken about a lot of the changes that happened in Southern Africa in the 19th century. And we kind of talk about like well, how people have interpreted that and stuff and then talk about um how some of those interpretations have led to the depiction of the Zulu kingdom, for example, as like warring and violent and things like that. So, yeah, and it's been really interesting. I think that, you know, there's a lot of young people in this country who are really keen to engage with the history of this country. And yeah, I'm, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm enjoying it. I'm enjoying it so far. Yeah. So I have a, I have a question uh on that how how is it going in terms of battling uh preconceptions about say for instance the zulu kingdom um like how how is it navigating the general assumption that what we have as the depiction of the zulu kingdom uh, uh is kind of this kind of universal truth like because obviously a lot of what you're doing is revising or i think a lot of what university work is doing is is revising some of those myths and like thinking about how those myths come uh, to be constructed but then how do we like move beyond those myths how do we complicate them how do we unpack them and stuff like that so i'm just wondering you know in a class of 200 people how do you begin to contained with with those kinds of uh assumptions uh you know preconceptions and stuff like that i think it's very it's very difficult like um obviously when one speaks about like shaka when people when you talk about like the zulu kingdom um uh there's obviously a lot attached to that right um and part of what 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 I'm trying to do and uh, what the students are trying to do is to think about, okay, so here are these events that we know about, right? We know, for mm-hmm. example, that uh, Shaka centralized his kingdom and expanded it, right? Uh, he, he centralized the role of his, um, of the Amabuto, like he centralized that kind of, uh, 
I guess you could call them like a warrior class. He centralized them and he used them to kind of advance into other spaces, right? And the knock-on effects of that are recorded by both oral traditions and um, uh, missionaries and European explorers, et cetera, et cetera. But then we also know there is this kind of movement by the British, by the Portuguese, there's slave trade trading going on, like the Griqua also slave trading in the region. And all of these are contributing factors to the movement of people across Southern Africa, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then we say like, okay, so what happens when historians later on take that evidence and construct it in an argument to say, you know, Africans were fighting amongst themselves. And the result of that is that the land was empty when Europeans arrived. Get out. So, so we kind of like unpack that. We say, okay, so how are, how are people using the evidence that we know about to say like, to make other things, uh, other kind of uh, narratives about Southern Africa, about the history of Southern Africa, about who belongs in Southern Africa. How do they mm. make those things believable, right? And how can we think about the evidence differently? Um, yeah. And then we say like, okay, so <laughs> if we, if the idea of the Mfikani, um, if we read it as say solely caused by the Zulu, then we have an image of the Zulu as violent, as, yeah. you know, um, as, <clears throat> as warring, as defensive, um, and what that does is it says that there is a particular way to think about Zuluness or being Zulu. Or, right. You know what I'm right. Um, and then we look at like, for example, that, that last that lost into the contemporary moment, right? Like that. Yeah, yeah. That that perception, that perception, that that so, image. So this. So, anyway. Go. So like one of the examples that I use that that, that like we engage with is uh, the the video game, the computer game called Civilization Six, which has the Zulu, you can play as the Zulu, right? Mm. And there's this great interview, which I think we should put down in the show notes between um, uh, Professor TJ Tali, who's a, a, a scholar of Zulu history. Um, and he walks through, and he's also a big Civilization Six player. So, and he walks through the ways in which like, the representations of Shaka in that thing are like based on the images of big, um, not, I almost said Becky Tele, um, Henry <laughs> Tele. Yeah, not not Becky Tele. Yeah, um, yeah. Henry Tele, who played um, Shaka Zulu in the film, uh, I think in the miniseries. In right? the, the miniseries, yeah. Yeah, and so and so we look at like, so he kind of like explores that and we ask like, okay, so why is it that in Civilization Six, the, the Zulu um, as a civilization in the game like their, their stats are heavily skewed towards like contact, like melee contact fighting. And like the impi is like a strong warrior, right? Like, like where does that come from? What is that idea? You know, what did it mean for the Zulu to be like really good, like technologically? Or like, you know, what is what other evidence is there of the way in which the Zulu state evolved that does not end in like them just being a warring nation? Yeah. So those are the kinds of debates that we kind of touch on. And I think it's yeah. like it's so important to to also interrogate some of those things because it says that yeah it says like there's only one way to be Zulu, or right. and these narratives are like very um, they are they they fix people right they fix people in particular ways they say like you know you you can't be anything but a certain idea of 
um, a certain kind of traditional, yeah, I think yeah. that's, so we're trying to unpack that and think about it a bit more. It's yeah. been fun. It's been interesting. Like, I think the thing is that a lot of people, a lot of people don't realize, but like the youth in this country are eager to engage these topics. Like they want to talk about it. Like, you know what I'm saying? Oh, for like, sure. Oh, how was the responses of some like uh, Zulu people in the class? Because I wonder how much of that, like, um, outside definition of one's culture they would kind of adopt themselves you know what i mean like you get told like you as a zulu person and you get told all these things and see all these things about what defines a zulu person and then you tend to believe that as well you know especially yeah. in modernization um like i wonder if there was like some realization we're like oh shit like we weren't just about this about fighting about being what is we had such and such we had actually a good uh oral tradition or we had good like i don't know cultural stuff like you know uh, and i see what you're getting at and i think it's important because um when a culture gets defined or seen as just this one thing then it's also easy for people to then adopt that for themselves like oh i am this now like this is what I am and I think that's what you always spoke spoke about Aiden of like ethnicity versus culture and like being careful not to think of both of them as the same um, but kind of intertwined you know in, in ways that 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 make a person kind of um, whole I think in a sense of their place within their culture or their ethnicity mm. Yeah, I think like you can't look, you can't um, the 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 point that 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 I'm trying to make is like you have this, you have traditions, right? And you have yeah. uh, narratives about belonging, narratives about culture, you have cultural traditions, etc. Um, and there's nothing entirely wrong, or I guess one of the things is that we're trying to explore is the ways in which certain ideas about tradition become fixed and says like there is this particular idea of tradition and then there's kind of like modern and if you are mm -hmm. traditional then you can't be modern and if you're modern you can't be traditional kind of mm -hmm. you know and these categories are something that we need to trouble because i mean if there's anything about tradition it's if there's anything that's true about tradition is that tradition changes like <laughs> you know um that's the first thing and the second thing if there's anything we know about tradition in africa it's that it was deeply affected by the mechanisms of colonialism that produced uh, like tribal authorities that mechanized tradition in a particular way to serve the interests of uh, co colonialism and particularly to the British. I mean, the British, the word tribe is an example, right? If you, I always say like, if you Google the word tribe, you know, we use tribe so innocently, like in everyday life, you say, you know, you can join like a, like a um, loyalty program and it's called like my tribe or something right but if you look up the word tribe if you google it and you click on google images and you see what comes up you realize that actually the word tribe is quite loaded like you know what i'm yeah. saying it means a particular idea of like primitive uh backward primordial uh non-western people right and so like we need to think about what it means to align yourself with that term you know, so, yeah. so the kind of debates we get into, um, which I think is, yeah, I think it's, it's a difficult thing to talk about. And it's especially difficult because, you know, um, 
I'm not a Zulu speaker. So it becomes very difficult to talk about these things without kind of, um, one has to kind of reckon with, you have to, like you have to make that distinction between a kind of talking, you are talking about the way history works, the way in which we take the evidence and we arrange it in a particular way. And that informs bigger narratives about how we belong in the world. Like what, like the traces of the past, we use that mm -hmm. as the base from which to construct our narratives about how we belong in the world, right? Um, and like, that's the starting point for yeah. how we talk about this. So we don't say like, we don't, we don't <clears throat> say the Mfiktani was a thing that happened. You know, we say the Mfiktani is a way to describe a series of events that have been put together to, to, um, and that have been thought of as contributing to certain changes that happened in the 19th century, right? Um, yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I think like another thing that you're pointing at that you didn't necessarily say is something that kind of happens globally to people who are like who come under subjugation or colonization or whatever. And that's the process of essentializing and like making mm. a, a, a like a, like reducing a native subject to, yeah. to its absolute base essence um and i think a lot of what happens in a lot of the success of british colonialism lies in its capacity to essentialize to the point where it becomes uh part of the narrative of the people being subjugated. Um, and I don't know. I, 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 and then the interesting thing that happens after that is that these distinct lines become the basis for uh, kind of discrete nationalisms with, within a state, right? So like, is like, so that, uh, uh, just explain that again, Bolton. Like so, like okay, so so the process of essentializing happens uh, mm -hmm. through decades and centuries of colonialism um, and subjugation. People are separated by language lines, by um, kind of really fake but but solid borders. Um, and then eventually, uh, like nationalisms emerge out of those separate groups, and okay. and, and and like clay, like so. So in the Western Cape, for instance, we have you know yeah. claims to extreme indigeneity. Like I am yeah. indigenous to this land, yes, and uh, I have it. a claim to this land, and I, you know, will banish anybody else who doesn't. Uh, fall within the bounds of this became your first of, type of thing of, like yeah uh and so i don't know i just i just think like a lot of the the th this is a good way this conversation is a good way to talk to people who say well colonialism is in the past and apartheid is in the past because the 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 exact the, the line the, the line of trajectory is there like you can follow i mean it's not one line it's like a fucking web but um you can track the 
the political narratives that give rise to the kind of separatisms, the, the types of racisms that we have to deal with now, uh, the type of uh, re like, uh, like ethnic mythologies we, we have to think about and contend with. Um, yeah, also, I know this is a, a undergrad class, but I feel like you could spend like the whole three years of your undergrad BA just discussing this, honestly, mm. like, like it's so um it's such a Layered. massive it's such a exactly it's so it's such layered, a it's bro. huge it's huge i mean do you think that that's why sorry no i think like the i just wanted to say the other thing that's always like like thinking about this stuff always makes me think about like for example how we think about cape town right and how we forget that and I, and I don't know how to emphasize this more, but how we forget that Cape Town was a slave society. Right. Right? It was a society that at its core, the slave was the backbone of its economy. Right? Yeah. That, and then what happened then was that uh, you had all these different groupings of people, all these different formations of, I don't know what we can call them. Let's not call them ethnicities. Let's call them groupings of people. Um, mm. and the ways in which people name themselves, these groups of people. You have the, the Griqua, you have the Griqua also giving rise to the term Afrikaner, you have, um, you have then the emergence of the term colored. And because there is this association um, with the term, uh, with the idea of a slave as kind of like a non, non like a, uh, as a non-human, as a kind of like beneath yeah. human, as the I guess the 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 slave living the slave kind of being socially dead, um, or socially disappeared in some sense. Like you have this, you have a disavowal of that history in favor of a kind of re-embrace of the term colored, right? Mm. And then, like in recent years, you have with the ways in which the the, the idea of blackness in South Africa, through its various kinds of circuits, through uh, black consciousness, and then back to a kind of um, through the state's idea of rainbow rainbow nationalism, through the state's idea of that you have um, you have to have diversity on the same grounds that apartheid did, on the same grounds of ethnicity. You have a sudden clamoring towards this idea of first nation. And with a lot of colored people saying like, you know, now we're First Nation, we're Indigenous on the same mm -hmm. ground. And when by, by doing that, it's also a claim to say, like, you know, we were your first. And it's once again a kind of reduction to the conversation about land, about belonging to the land, about all these kinds of things. And my point is that on some level, it's about we need to pay attention to the ways in which like we talk about things and the way in which we narrate ourselves. Like something that I learned this week that just like blew my mind again, even though I probably heard it before, but it just blew my mind again, was the fact that the statue of Jan van Riebeek in Cape Town was actually paid for and commissioned by Cecil John Rhodes. And in fact, I mean, yeah, yeah. But but this is part and parcel because what happened oh. was that, and this and this is part of the this is part of a conversation I think we need to have is the ways in which we think about these categories as kind of like fixed 
things that have existed forever, et cetera, et cetera. But there was a time in South Africa's history where like the, the, the Boer republics were fighting imperialism, right? They thought the British were imperialists, right? Like they like, it's weird to think about like, mm. and there was, an, there was a moment when English and kind of Afrikaans whiteness were not a homogenous group. And then you had the Van Riebeck festival in 1952, the kind of culminating of an Afrikaner nationalist moment that then recovered this figure, Jan van Riebeck, who was like discarded, right? He, he was a nobody, in the, he was in the dustbin of history. Like he was a disgraced, disgraced company official. Nobody knew he, who he was really. He was, re, he was brought out as this kind of founding figure of a shared kind of white history of South Africa. Um, and obviously it benefited uh, the, the interests of figures like Cecil John Rhodes, of mining capital in Joburg, in Johannesburg, to kind of contribute to this moment in which like white kind of nationalism would become the, the, the order of the day or the, the national kind of narrative of the day, right? So mm. even just that little, like these categories are, even the category of like, I guess, the, 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 the histories that we sometimes think are very self-evident have their own structure and narrative structure that we need to uncover and talk about. We need mm. to think about how is it that we understand the past in this way, right? Like what are, the, what are the traces that we have and how are those traces kind of organized into something intelligible for us that we then yeah. take on and then say, oh no, this is mine now. This is like my forever story kind of thing. You know what I'm saying? Damn. Yeah. That's, that's so damn interesting, bro. Yeah. It also just makes me think about the fact that like, uh, you know, during the, I think it's during the American Civil War and they are fighting basically the, the United Kingdom because that they are, see them as an imperial power, but they're fighting them so that they can continue their practices of, of slavery unencumbered by the throne, like, you know, the, the, mm. the kingdom. And it's just so fucking fascinating, man. Like, like, so, so like, what? so, so yes, absolutely. These Afrikaners are fighting the British because they are, are an imperial force, a colonial force. But like there are layers of meaning behind the, the reasoning for that and like the the logics of the logics of that kind of resistance is so is fucking interesting, Mabro. It's yo, it's kind, mm. I don't like it, but it's fucking interesting because it it shows itself elsewhere in the world as well. It shows itself in the States, uh, and I'm sure it shows itself many other places um but like yeah these are the two examples i can think of right now i mean like yeah. the thing about the thing about it also and I, like i just want to touch on the, the on the discomfort is like it, it shows us like ideas like liberation for example are not necessarily like we should we should understand these terms as also having histories of their own right like and right. caught up within the way in which you make sense of the world like mm. so and also like that these things are also in particular context, right? Like after union, like that idea of like 
Afrikaner and Boera two very different categories before union. Yeah. Right? And then they start to like become something else as Afrikaner nationalism kind of morphs into something else, right? And at the same mm -hmm. time, you've got all these early figures of the ANC who are, uh, I think, like retrospectively taken out of that particular political landscape that they're operating in. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, like what does it mean when we think about like, like a lot of the early nationalist thinkers are often critiqued for their allegiance with the British. But what does it yeah. mean in the kind of context of the fact that like there was this other kind of uh, formation, you know, the Boer republics, yeah. Afri like a kind of latent Afrikaner nationalism that was also kind of mobilizing. And what did it mean? What did the British then look like as a kind oh. of future, right? Because like, I mean, also something I heard this week, like history is about the future, really. It's about how we make sense of things and how we see ourselves going forward, right? Like, so on some level, like i feel like early nationalist african nationalists were also thinking about what what does alignment with a certain kind of future mean yeah and, you know and what does it mean to kind of say to the other future no thanks like we you don't know, want that other future yeah. people just did what they could what they thought best at the time and like to look back and to sign up kind of like nitpick and say oh they were corrupt and they were stupid and this this and that like I mean, yeah. What, what do you expect and understand? A decision had to be made, and <clears throat> I think the I think the, the one of the um, and and Aiden can speak more to this. And and actually, you you a teacher, but like a lot of what we have to teach when we're teaching undergrad history is that is actually that you can't apply your like political and, and, yeah. and, and model logic uh, and say like and like pass judgment because that's not useful in the like pursuit of trying to um, understand these people's stories mm. but also understand like why we are in the moment that we are now. Uh, another thing I wanted to say that, that Aiden kind of reminded me of is that so my my father told me actually my dad's older brother told me once that their dad before he died uh so this was after the apartheid state gets um becomes the apartheid state um one of the main political parties in the western cape that that could function as any kind of opposition was the liberal party and so my dad my father's father and this is like a precursor to um like a like a great ancestor of of, of the democratic party eventually and then the da and so on and so forth but in its early formation it was a response to white nationalism so uh, but it was the one party where people who were not white could also slot in. Their politics was almost entirely informed by the British Liberal Party as well. So it's very interesting that these kinds mm -hmm. of like, you know, we, we, we're talking about the early days of the ANC and like uh, why were nationalists in that moment aligning with 
British folk, but we see pockets of that emerge at, at other points in uh, like in the history of, of South Africa as well. Oh. And like they used to have like like meetings in Ravensmead and and uh, like liberal party meetings and stuff like that. And eventually it, it kind of sizzled out, but um, I don't know, he, like he was in the second world war, he came back, your mind would tell you that, you know, he would be like anti-imperial, mm, rather be against everything, blah, blah, yeah. blah. But for some reason, it made sense to him that the Liberal Party was the line to take, that that was the way to be able to critique the state and like to be able to come at the white nationalist uh, Afrikaner state at that point. So I don't know, it's, but I, I don't know. It's interesting. I can. I mean, yeah. yeah I just want, like just to respond to like Lee's point about like you know people did what they needed to do, et cetera, et cetera. Like, um, I agree. Like you know, uh, actors, actors in the past, let's call them that, or you know, people who people do things. People live contradictory lives. I think we must start there. Like people live contradictory lives. Like you know, um, contradictory and complex and complicated lives. And the formations that emerge from those contra contradictory and complicated lives are often complex, contradictory, and very strange formations, right? Like, and I think one of the things that uh, that I'm, that I'm trying to do, and the way that I've been schooled, and I think Walton can also reflect on this as well, is like history is not necessarily about like the ways in which we reflect on what people did in the past is also our way of constructing narratives about them in the present. So in a sense, like we are producing that history as we kind of grapple with what we know about the past, right? So history is as much like, I don't like this category of historian because I think on some level, we all kind of are trying to do the work of historians. We're trying to make sense of what we know about the past in the present. And that making sense of it in the present is a production of history in the present, mm. right? Um, and that's a very kind of like, it's a disabling idea. I think like if you are an academic and you've like, like me studied for 10 years, got a PhD, like, you know, I would love to put the category of historian on my little thing, you know, cause I've, it's like my, my skill or whatever. But at the end of the day, like that's a, a constructed idea of authority because really like on some level history is about how people make sense of the past and the present. And like, I think another thing that needs to be said just in reflection on your story, Walton, like, you know, like the ANC, like Tsepo Madlingkosi has done this work where he's argued, no, you know, the ANC was also deeply aligned with all sorts of class interests at the time. Like they, at the, at the site of a kind of encroaching um, a kind of colonial uh, attention to land and property and stuff, the ANC, which was more largely formed by a kind of like African elite, right? Like a, a rising middle class, sought alliances with tribal authorities, like chiefs and kings, right? To kind of bolster their position to protect their class interests. Mm -hmm. Now, if you think about it like that, and then suddenly with that in mind, the transition becomes a very interesting thing to think about. Because what is the ANC in some senses, but 
formed out of a certain kind of class interest right like yes. kind of elite interest and when you think about like the idea like people are always saying yeah you know like those people were really like fucked up at Codesa, blah 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 and it's like well like if you think about it <laughs> like what like what did you expect right. you know, what, are class, exactly. what, what are the class what are the what are the class interests of you can't exactly. apply today's like logic right you can't apply the um, present's logic with with, with with situations and in the past it doesn't work like that yeah you know? but also yeah. like like i was saying earlier like these <clears throat> these ideas have have histories of their own so you have to kind of track like where does this come from like, what are the kind of you mm. know like well, what happens doesn't just happen yeah and you kind of you look at the structure of the way in which we talk about these things how have we framed this how have we named this like what is the ways in which you know and then you kind of realize actually yeah i like something that really blew my mind again this week was um this idea that the state is not the government right it's a marxist yeah. idea that the state is a, like the consolidation of class interests right say that so, again the state Those... is not the government okay right what the government yeah. is an arm of the state right the state is the consolidation of power around class interests so okay. what is the interest of a particular class or the ruling class right in the case of south africa let's talk about um uh, private property <laughs> the interests of the interests of capital you know the mining capital particularly um the interest of finance capital maybe the us is a different example they actually with finance capital right mm -hmm. and the state forms the state as a, a as a structure of power as a, as a structure of authority consolidates around those interests to protect those interests and from it produces all sorts of different institutions right the university is an institution of the state that teaches a particular kind of I guess you can call it ideology about what it means to defend class interests. Now, this is a very crude, like this, I'm crude, crude, like I'm really making this very yeah. crude, but, but yeah. the point is, the point that I'm making is, if you think about it like that, like things like state capture become very different. You know, things like, like corruption becomes very different. Do you know what I'm saying? Like if the state is not the government, if the state is like so then okay, say more say more about say more about how it becomes different how the state capture become a different question so like, for example you think about so what does it mean to what does it mean to capture the government versus what does it mean to capture the state okay now, now the language around state capture in the media has been around the capture of the government it's been a language yeah. of corruption right and then mm -hmm. what is because the, we always see the, the government as the state i mean for me now yes, like before yeah, you, you even mentioned this yeah. when whenever someone said the state i always thought the, i think the government yeah. and you're trying to tell me they are separate i'm saying that this, the government is one arm of the state the government okay. is an arm of the state <clears throat> that allows that that looks after the interests of those who are the ruling class right so if you like if you think about state capture right if you think about the argument that's been made that you know the anc is involved in in um, the, let's say the anc is involved in state capture the anc is the main reason for it blah 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 you know the people you prosecute for it are members of the government because that's now in the understanding that the state is the government 
But the minute you dislodge that and you say the government, then you're like, who else is involved in capturing this structure of power called the state and being mm-hmm. able to control its resources, right? Well, like, what is finance capital doing? Like, you know, like KPMG, like the auditors. Like so the so, so, so no, if, like government, if government is one arm of the state, would they are like, would like uh, capital, like, I don't know, finance be another, uh, like pri- private finance, I mean, be another arm of the state. If the state is the, like the seat of power of a particular ruling class, or, or like, I mean, like, like what are the other arms of the state then, is what I'm asking basically. Think about, think about what would be, what would be the structures, the institutions, the ideologies that okay. would that would perpetuate um, or uphold enforce, the, uphold yeah. the interests of the okay. ruling class. Okay, got, got it. That's, got that's it. Like all those yeah. kind of structures. So the if, banking if the, system, yeah. a banking system. Like if you've got now, now obviously, like, like once again, like this is God this is something Eden, that, you're blowing my this, fucking this, mind now. This bro. is something that requires quite a new. Like you need to, you need to. I'd be non-emotional like, about the people it. listening to this don't take my word for it go and look up concepts of the state go and think about it a bit more etc because right. I'm obviously butchering like quite very complex arguments that have very complex right you don't have uh, you don't have the, a three-hour lecture space to do this in you, yeah, you... i also don't and have and like, where are your like slides <laughs> yeah exactly um but but the point that i'm making is like that's one example of like I think a kind of political literacy or like a like a general set like these are we need to understand these terms a bit better do you know what i'm saying like mm-hmm. like you think about think about think about the history of apartheid right and you think about the collusion between the apartheid state and like various like banks various like state-owned entities you know what i'm saying like all these different things that were colluding to make sure that the apartheid government stayed in power because they were protecting the interests of, for example, the mining companies, for example. Do you understand? The property companies, the property, red zoning, the, yeah. the, so, the land distribution, re, like reallocation. So, then, so they, they put these laws and they make these finance laws, property laws, marriage laws all these things to kind of uphold the ideology that serve the people that serve the state and the state is basically the 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 people who are in want to be kept in power behind the scenes non-governmental like people who we don't really see fucking abolish the state maybe (laughs) But the now, I mean now. Abolish the state. I'm sorry. But but Walton, like if if you think of the state as an amalgamation, as a consolidation of all these various kind of structures that serve to protect the interests of the ruling class, how do you abolish the state? (laughs) Do you know what I'm saying? Like it becomes a very. So this is the thing. Like I I would say, and this is like very anti-anarchist of me. I would say revolutionary war and violence would be one of the main steps to towards abolishing the state because <laughs> I, like so 
one state doesn't exist and operate in isolation to, to like global capitalism. That, that would just be a, a, a fallacy and a fantasy, right? Like so much of what is, what we think about as state capture. I, I was just thinking that, that states don't exist in isolation of one, of one another. That's so much of what we think about as the capture of the South African state has deep ties to Russia, has deep ties to the United States, has deep ties to the UK. China. So if we're going to, to China, if we're going to abolish the state, it has to be, I mean, I am very much of the mind that we have to start small, that we all have to do our small part and it will, like we can build on that. But um, like to answer your question, Aiden, how, like, how do we get to the point of abolishing the state? I think uh, that like, I think that uh, um, part of it will have to be revolutionary struggle. And I think this is where the Marxists would be super handy uh, uh, in terms of analysis and stuff like that. And, but I also think they can only take us so far. Um, so, so like, like Marx's, Marx's idea would have been that like you have, you, 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 the state would first, like the government would first be replaced by what he calls basically a dictatorship of the proletariat, right? Which um, is basically uh, uh, a formation of the majority of the kind of, the, not, not the ruling class, but the underground, those, those who have labor, those who are subjected to kind of like selling their labor within the system, right? And then after that, you would have uh, a slow kind of like uh, erosion of the idea of the state. Remember the state with all its kind of institutions, like that would slowly erode away into more democratic forms or more kind of participatory forms of governance, of laws, of welfare, of like basically the anarchist mode, right? Like eventually order will arise from anarchy, right? Like that's the kind of like very crude understanding of, of um, of anarchy and i think like like if we think about like the history of the soviet union like the kind of overthrow of uh tsar, uh, tsar, tsarist russia um to kind of produce what a dictatorship of the proletariat like i think like it needs to it needs to hold up against like the particular form of yeah, capitalism. I don't want to say capitalism. Oh, like I feel like it's becoming an empty term. Like, but um, but I think like yeah, I, I think like it needs to respond to particular ways in which capitalism has changed. Like, if you look at this, like, so when people say when people say the neoliberal state, like, what do they mean? Right. Yes, please. Like, do you know I what I'm No, I, 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 I don't, I don't know. Like, yeah, I I don't know. Tell me what that means. But I've been in academia for fucking 12 <laughs> years, and I, when I ask, <laughs> I still hear that term, and I'm like, uh, I don't know what you're saying. But, uh, um, like, like, okay, it, it's actually, yeah, okay, go ahead. No, it's fine. No, no, go, you go. I've come across the term in different ways. No, talk, bro. 
But I talk, you, I, I want to hear. I've, I've come across that term in different, like, contexts. And then, like, I, I'm kind of like, okay, li- neoliberal state, neoliberalism, is it, like, what is that? Like, you know? And I, I think shit's changing so quickly, like, with the term capitalism and, like, how we kind of pass that now. And it's yeah. like... Uh, you know, it's, 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 but the language hasn't caught up yet, you know, because how things are structured and how power structures are forming day by day, month by month is changing um, into and, 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 and forming and evolving into new types of things that we will, we will refer to things as capitalism. Um, We will refer to things as neoliberalism or neoliberal state. Um, But um yeah. yeah to get what do you guys i t- make so up I, those terms yeah so so I, I i i like to think of neoliberalism as a as a as a process and a function rather than a like a category of like political analysis so i think about it as the complete erasure of uh, responsibility and just this kind of broad spreading bureaucracy and bureaucratic process that eliminates the possibility of people who need things getting them, whether they be answers, services, you know, products, whatever, but it's like this kind of immense spread of um, administrative and managerial processing and everybody has a manager all the way up to fucking the moon maybe everybody there's like it's like the endless managerial train basically (laughs) all the way to god yeah god God is a neoliberal (laughs) everyone has a manager (laughs) everyone has a manager all the way up to god (laughs) the pope has a manager i like that you guys must remind me you guys must remind me to put that that David Graeber conversation in the show notes uh, where he talks about bullshit jobs because he does a thing mm-hmm. about he does a thing about uh, bureaucracy, liberalism, and and like managerialism, but also that Greek uh, economist. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Lee. Oh, brass fire! I um, forgot his name. And and he spoke about like. So he, he, he took capitalism, he took a critique of capitalism further than just talking about capitalism itself, but talking mm. about the, the way... Feudal, feudal the, cap, like feudalism. Yeah, feudal, going, feudal, feudalism. Feudal... No competition. Feudal somethingism. And, mm. and basically it's like capitalism that has, that has ca- cannibalized itself uh, is, yes, is yeah. the way he talks about it. So I'm going to, uh, I'll try and remember to put that in the show notes so that uh, people can see yeah, what we're referencing yeah. and, and and get some more uh, grounding. Everyone has a supervisor and the supervisors have Bruh. managers and the managers have cluster managers and the cluster managers have... We see that managers. in home affairs, bro. Think about home affairs as a service, right? What like What is the function of home affairs in South Africa? It's to be able to provide the documents that we need in order to be a functioning citizen in society like according to according to like legal governmental structures Mm. but they make it so hard to do that they make it incredibly hard to do that 
something as simple as getting a copy of your birth certificate is uh, is a, a a year and a half long process for some people. Uh, so, you know, th these things should not be the way they are. And I, I, yeah, yeah. You, it's like you need you pay whether it's in time or money, and most likely it's both to kind of be a citizen or just like you had no choice to be born, but now you must jump through hoops. And like, there are people that can afford to take a day off to go stand in a line for an entire day, but most of South Africa doesn't. Or like they don't possess the literacy or the type of, you know, filling out forms and asking like for this number. And it's, 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 it's just non, it's like the type of information you need to give. It's like, I had to go for, for Lucas's passport or to renew something. I had to give my father's death certificate and my parents' marriage certificate for Lucas's stuff. They need the grandparents. They need the grandparents' documentation. So my mom had to go and fish out. It was just like, why? What, what what's the what's the you know now there's some now in the rural areas and the far flying right. areas who has the stuff but uh, you know but uh yeah 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 where i'm staying in providence uh so historically there has been a an opioid issue yes um and with but there's also been a kind of homelessness issue in Providence and the surrounds. Um, and a lot, a lot of the state um, social workers come out every day to the, to the main, like, like basically the Balville station of Providence, like where all okay, the, okay. The, the big bus and taxi rank and every, you know, okay. The central spot, they come there almost every day Basically, all they do is sign people up to get a social security card and to get some other kind of identification as well so that they can access oh. the services. Now I'm asking myself, what, in, like, you know, what, under what condition do we live where we require of a person to present evidence of their existence? so that they can access food and a bed in a shelter. Like, why is that a precondition? Like, and, and I think about refugees in South Africa who have to go to home affairs and like, resources, they, and like how they are treated. Like, because like, resources have know, to be tracked and monitored. So that person who's doing that, they have to now document how much work they did. Exactly. Handing and out food, they need to, the to now bro. now handing out food to people that needs to be documented. That needs to be as checks and balances because the system works like that. It doesn't work on empathy and just hand the shit out. It works on a numbers game. Like things need to be tracked. Yeah. And you, I, I, I mean, homeless shelters do the same thing. It makes little sense, bro. Homeless shelters, you can't access it without the ID. Yeah. You can't. You can't. You can't access without. Uh, now ask a homeless lady or a homeless 17, 18 year old. Where's your ID? Right. It's like yeah, here's it, yeah. 
like I, <laughs> so the funny thing is the funny thing is like you know um once again going back to how we talk about <laughs> things and the terms we use and stuff like what are migrants uh refugees. nationals refugees homeless people what yeah. are they described as if they don't have papers what are they described as um but are you asking me a high school question now but tell us uh, stateless people stateless people Jeez. right wow. that's very what that's like very fuck? interesting right like what? it's very interesting to me that that is the way that uh, you think about that in relation to so basically it's someone who is outside of the kind of Operation outside of power. that system that can kind of that that can it like a stateless person is someone for whom the state has no control over yeah someone that someone the state cannot exert power over but then it yeah. becomes really interesting because actually like implicitly or almost like by effect of the fact that the state cannot control it the state does control a stateless person in a weird kind of logic right that, i mean that's like, that's that yeah sorry go ahead yeah no 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 that's all i wanted to say i think i think i was just going to say i was just going to say that that's why i think uh, the city of cape town is constantly trying to find houseless and homeless people like is absolutely an attempt to exert absolute control over people who have no capacity to pay a fine so then if they get picked up again they get put in a cell like uh, uh, you know like what 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 is the but I, <laughs> I mean, like <laughs> once, like I mean, that is also interesting in the context of Cape Town because there is a history and like uh, organizations like Punaukwazi and uh, yeah. I think Reclaim the City have also pointed this out. Like, there's you can actually track the kind of bylaws of the city back to like the vagrancy laws of like the 18, 1840s or something that Jeez. came after slavery ended, right? So, so wait, so this is very interesting, right? So, so slavery ends. Yeah. Right. And now you have these individuals who can, I, I like, I guess, uh, they have agency, uh, maybe agency, but like in an ideal world, they're able to sell their labor, right? And they yep. are able then to access a certain kind of class mobility. Obviously, this is now mm-hmm. not as nuanced as it should be, but right. Um, and that poses a threat to the state. The state being the consolidation of the interests of the ruling class. So, what does the state do? <laughs> it pursues laws in order to control. Oh the my God! Like, can you see how this? Like, just to go, like, I'm just, I'm, I'm being annoying with it now. But just to kind of no, emphasize you're not. The, ways in, the ways in which it's so important to make that distinction, like that simple distinction of the state is not the government. Like we don't have lobbying, them. right? South Africa doesn't have lobbying. I don't think in a public sense we have lobbying, but I think behind the behind the scenes, like you know, people buy yeah. our politicians for for votes and stuff all the time. Um, because but, I'm thinking, okay, the government, how do then they know what laws need to be need to come into if, in effect to uphold the interest of the state? right so do they come yeah. to them and say hey we need this we need this we need this and the government yeah. says got it because that's like that's how lobbying works like in the states right they, you, you fund and you're like okay we want these laws to be passed this this and that um in south africa I, w- I think it's almost kind of more sinister because it's so it's so ducked and it's so hidden <laughs> and that's why parties are also 
not reluctant to show their funding there. One of the Oppenheimer's daughters funded the DA's last campaign. I think it was like 20, 30 mil or something like that. And that's where Aiden comes in. Like, okay, that's that. Now I see how the government is not the state, but there to serve the interests mm. of the state. And Johan Rupert yep. as well. I mean, if South Africa was such a terrible ah. place to live, why, that man would have been gone. You know what I mean? Like people are like, oh, South Africa's bad. That, like, why, why are then the richest families in, in South Africa that have been living there for the last century still there? Their children yeah. are still there. You know, if everyone's moving out to give a better future for their children, why are these people not, even though they can afford to go buy a mansion in maybe Mozambique or in, in go to Portugal or something? It's because the interest of being served, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So now everything's making sense. <laughs> but, uh, sense actually, but, uh, I think uh, <laughs> it's been an hour. Look, I, th- I do it. I think we need to talk about this again because I think we need to talk about techno feudalism at some point. Like, I think hey, that's yeah. that Yanis Yaravakis, I don't know how to pronounce it. There we go. There we yeah. go. But, um, yeah, that, that concept of techno feudalism, I think, uh, like we need to think about the state there, right? Because now the state yes. and the corporation become very, very close. But I will yes. leave that for the next episode or another. Chapter. Hell yes. <laughs> This was a can we talk old... about that next place can we talk about yeah. that next? yeah that was right, this that... was so this was so good starting hey, now i'm like, gonna go freak out now i just want to say thank you to aiden and lee and andrik in his absence uh for an amazing recording we're gonna put a bunch of stuff in the show notes um follow us on twitter at jxc podcast on Instagram at JMC Podcast and on uh, Facebook um, at Jelly and Custard. Um, yeah, check us out on YouTube, Anchor, Spotify, uh, iTunes, uh, all the things. And I am going to go look after a dog because my university doesn't pay me well. Cheers. <laughs> Cheers, man. <laughs> <laughs> but for you, I'm gonna go look after. I'm gonna go 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 Don't. work my side hustle. <laughs> right. are, you, are, you like, are you like walking the? Are you like walking the dogs also? Yeah. Okay. Cool. Yeah. That's yeah. Cool. Everything, okay. bro. Cats, dogs, goldfish, <laughs> parakeet. Right, you wash the you you wash those cats. goldfish. You yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> Cheers, guys. Cheers. Cheers. Love bye. you guys. Bye. Me too, bye.